0: into my head, and so it has affected the the length of the notes, I think. My title for tonight is Christ Eternal. In our two sessions tomorrow, we will consider Christ Incarnate, and then finally Christ Returning. In other words, we're going to be looking at, uh, over the course of the weekend, three phases of, of Christ's work, which is to say, tonight, Lucas has tasked me with speaking about Christ Eternal, Christ in eternity past, Christ before the incarnation. Christ before he was conceived and born. And already we realize that we are saying amazing things about Jesus. You cannot talk about what Lucas was doing 20 years before he was born. No one here has a before he was conceived and born. But Jesus does. Jesus or John opens his magisterial prologue to his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know that when John says the Word, he's talking about Jesus, the person. He tells us just a few verses later in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I don't have to deal with that tonight. We'll get to that tomorrow. We can just park in verse 1. Verse 1 covers plenty of time, literally an eternity. In the beginning. Which beginning? Well, really, every beginning. Because John is talking about the absolute beginning, the the capital B beginning, this is true of all beginnings. No matter when in history you talk about, in the beginning of Babylon's assault on Jerusalem, in the beginning of Israel's exodus from Egypt, or Abraham's journey from Ur, in the beginning of Adam's formation from the dirt, in the beginning of the very shaping of the universe, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was always there. Jesus was always there. Already, that's, that's a pretty marvelous thing to say about Jesus. But that's not the only thing going on in verse 1. I started actually a few weeks ago reading the beginning of John to my two, two sons, and my seven-year-old stopped me right at the end of verse 1. He said, Dad, how can the Word be with God and be God? Those two things just didn't go together. The combination didn't make sense. You can't have with and be. Those don't fit. So weird. We're going to consider tonight that what John says in chapter 1, verse 1 of his gospel is not weird. It's profound. It's profound, but it's not weird. Not if you were like John, a Jew who had been reading their scriptures, who knew the history of God's self-revelation to man. John is telling you something profound about Jesus of Nazareth. And what he says is fully rooted in everything that has come before Jesus' incarnation. Because Jesus has always been, he was there before his incarnation. So tonight we're going to meditate ever so briefly on Christ in the Old Testament. Now there are two ways that we say Christ was in the Old Testament. The first is in types and shadows. When we talk about typology, we are confessing that God is the sovereign Lord of history, that he ordered history, he created institutions, he raised up people to foreshadow Christ and his work. Christ's work is prefigured, it's imaged, it's patterned in the Old Testament, in the priesthood, in the Davidic kingship, in the exodus, in the sacrificial laws. But tonight we're not going to meditate on Christ in the Old Testament as types and shadows. He's there like that, it's true. Tonight we're going to consider Christ as a character in the Old Testament. See, Jesus was not just prefigured in the Old Testament. He was active in the Old Testament. Jesus was active before the Incarnation. In other words, Christ wasn't just hiding backstage during all of history and then at his incarnation, the birth happens and then surprise, there's this new character on the play that we've never seen before. Christ, the eternal Son of God, always existed, who was in the beginning, through whom and for whom all things were made, was active in the Old Testament. Another way to say that is tonight we're going to consider Jesus not just as the message of the Old Testament, but as the messenger of the Old Testament. We're going to spend the first part of our time together making a briefcase for Jesus, active in the narrative of the Old Testament, and then elaborating on his roles and titles. I say make a case because for some people, this is an uncommon idea, and I'm not going to assume any particular background uh, tonight. It's, it's become sort of uh, unpopular to talk this way, especially in the academy. I spend a lot of time in the academy, especially in the academy I will mention on the, right at the outset that this idea is not uncommon in church history. The vast majority of church history has recognized Christophanies or appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, most Christians throughout history have described a good majority of theophanies or appearances of God in the Old Testament as Christophanies, appearances of Christ. It was the majority view of the fathers of the reformers and the Puritans. So, when you read about a figure called the angel of the Lord speaking for the Lord, or or the commander of the army of the Lord telling Joshua to take off his shoes, Christians throughout history have understood that as Jesus, the pre incarnate Christ appearing and acting. But as I mentioned in recent times, a lot of Christians have become squeamish about talking of Jesus appearing and active in the Old Testament, either identifying him with the angel of Yahweh or other figures. And some of that impulse is understandable. There's this desire not to read into the Old Testament. We don't want to eisege, we don't want to be fanciful in our interpretation. Many people would rather say that, uh, for instance, the angel of the Lord, that's just a special delegate from God, speaking on his behalf like any other ancient messenger would. We will address that option, but for now I'll just quote my favorite Puritan, John Owen, in response. He said, This is an invention crafted to evade the appearances of the Son of God in the Old Testament. It is against the interpretation of all antiquity and it is contrary to any reason or instance produced to make it good. The conceit of applying all these appearances to a created, delegated angel is irreconcilable with the sacred text and is contrary to the sense of the ancient writers of the Christian Church. But that's just an argument from authority. Ultimately, we should be considered with an argument from the ultimate authority, from the Scripture itself. We're going to take a, a little bit of a dive. I've provided for you a number of Old Testament texts in your handout. I'm not going to cover all of them, but there were a few places where I would like you to have your eyes on the text, and instead of flipping all over, we provided that for you in your notes. We're not going to cover all of it, but uh, hopefully, and I apologize, we're probably not in perfectly the exact order that it is in your handout, but hopefully you'll be able to find the text as we cite them. And then at the end of the very brief survey, we will see that the church throughout history was not being fanciful to understand Jesus as a character in the Old Testament. They were on solid ground. And in fact, the opening line of John's gospel is far more readily intelligible than many have imagined. It's even more profound. So the first step in, in the case to recognize is to recognize the fact that God often appears. He, he manifests in the Old Testament in some sort of physical form. And this is different than just using anthropomorphic language of God. The Bible often does that too, right? Like in Psalm 11, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Psalm 11 clearly does not envision physical eyes. But plenty of times, the narrative of the Bible does very obviously envision some sort of physical appearance. The way Yahweh is described is not a poetic anthropomorphism. And many times, the text does not give any special name to this manifestation. It's alternately not described much at all or just assumed to be in some sort of physical form or or said to resemble a man. Yahweh walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He appears as a man in Genesis 18 to Abraham, such that he could have his feet washed. He wrestled with Jacob in Genesis 32. He appears in between the trees in Zechariah 1. In Exodus, we read that Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So we know God does this. He appears. He manifests in visible forms. And it is a normal enough idea that it often goes without much comment. And then you have this figure all throughout the narrative narrative sections of the Bible. The angel of the Lord. The angel of Yahweh. And many people have noticed that the angel of Yahweh often speaks as Yahweh. He speaks in the first person as God, to the point where you are pretty much forced to identify him as God himself. And as we mentioned, many interpreters say, well, hold up, this is just normal representative messenger stuff. Authorized messengers, representatives, they can speak on behalf of the one who sends them. Prophets could write in the first person for Yahweh, Ancient messengers could speak so for kings. We see that with Rabshaka, who spoke in the first person for Sennacherib in the book of Kings. But if you actually compare all the accounts, both in the Bible and in wider ancient literature, they do not compare at all. When you had an ancient messenger speak for a king, it would always be something like, the king says, I have declared a, a new holiday. In 2 Kings, Rabshakeh says, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? He speaks in the first person for the king, but he clearly identifies that he is speaking for the king. Thus says the great king. Hear the words of the great king. He says that at least four times in the account. Prophets would say, thus says Yahweh, over and over in the prophets, thus says Yahweh. But there is nothing comparable in the literature of the ancient Near East or in the prophetic books for how the angel of Yahweh becomes indistinguishable from Yahweh in the text. In fact, often he does not make any thus says announcement at all. He just begins talking in the first person. And furthermore, it's not just how he talks, it's how the narrator talks about him. Often the narrator will introduce only the angel of Yahweh, never mention Yahweh specifically. He just assumes for the angel of Yahweh to be present is for Yahweh to be present in a way that representatives in ancient literature are never treated. You never have that kind of assumption for representative messengers in other ancient texts. Rabshakeh is never identified as Sennacherib, though he speaks for him. I mean, the narrative at no point in 2 Kings ever sounds like Sennacherib is talking directly to the Israelites. It never sounds like Rabshakeh is Sennacherib. It's always clear the distinction between them. Compare that with Genesis 16. The angel of Yahweh found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, The angel of Yahweh said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of Yahweh also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The passage concludes, So she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. The narrator makes clear the angel of Yahweh is speaking, but he never gives any indication that this angel is a representative for someone else, And the angel never employs any sort of messenger formula of any sort. But the narrator does summarize the whole episode by describing the angel as Yahweh who was speaking with her. Or remember the famous burning bush scene in Exodus. Note how it begins. The angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The text goes out of its way to specify that the angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses in the bush. And then it is content to just talk of Yahweh himself speaking to Moses. Never give any hint that he is talking through a representative who is quoting him. In fact, the rest of the narrative and indeed the rest of the Bible describes this experience as Yahweh appearing to Moses in the bush. So much so that we actually often forget that in the very first verse of the episode it specifies that it was the angel of Yahweh who appeared to him. You can see this very clearly in alternation between the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh in very closely parallel texts. Yahweh promises in the Exodus episode that his presence would go before the people And we read statements like this, Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. Just a few verses later, then the angel of God who is going before the people of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. A few verses later, in the morning watch, Yahweh in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw them into a panic. These are not isolated, cherry-picked incidents. I was very conservative with the notes that I gave you. This is par for the course for how the historical texts speak of the angel of Yahweh. You have nothing comparable with the descriptions of other ancient representatives and messengers in other texts. This is unequivocally not the normal way to talk about representatives in the Bible or in the ancient Near East. Now before we go any further, we'll briefly address one of the common hang-ups with identifying the angel as Yahweh himself in some way. What is an angel? It's a a messenger. It's someone who's who's sent. That's the base meaning of the underlying Hebrew word and indeed in the underlying Greek word. It's often used to describe any old messenger, although it does eventually come to have a, a heavenly spiritual messenger kind of connotation. And so sometimes we can be squeamish about calling God an angel. God isn't a messenger. He's the one who sends messengers. God isn't the one who sent. He sends But we don't need to be defensive about identifying God as messenger because the biblical text does so explicitly. In Genesis 48, when Jacob blesses Joseph's two sons, he invokes God with this description. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. He calls God the angel who redeemed me. The point being, the biblical text is not shy about using messenger language of Yahweh. It's not the main way to talk about him, but it is licit and even appropriate in many contexts. We'll consider why shortly. And yet, for all the close identification, there is some distinction between Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh in some texts. In at least some texts, there seems to be a distinction in the sense that there's two separate agencies involved. In Genesis 19, after Yahweh finishes speaking with Abraham in the form of a man, it says he went down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the text curiously says, Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. Some sort of distinction between Yahweh on earth raining the fire and the Yahweh in heaven from whom the fire comes. Or when the people summarized the Exodus in Numbers 20, they said, when we cry to Yahweh he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And of course, in the, in the famous commissioning passage in Exodus, we read Yahweh speaking, and he says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not Pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. A little while later, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hibbites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them. Text continues. So notice, the angel is sent from God, but also, even there, consider the divine prerogatives he is described with by God himself. God says of the angel, obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. He will not pardon he. He will not pardon your transgression. Who can forgive sins but God alone? God also says, my name is in him. So you have this angel who bears all these divine prerogatives, who speaks indistinguishably from Yahweh, who the narrators make no effort to distinguish from God and actually identify with Yahweh, who is both sent from God and yet so closely identified with God that the angel going before the people can be described in Deuteronomy 4 as God brought the people out of Egypt with His own presence, by His great power. There is, in the Old Testament, the sent God, the sent Yahweh, God the messenger, distinct from yet fully identified with God in heaven. For the sent one to be present is for Yahweh to be present. To have seen the sent one is to have seen Yahweh. We won't even quote all the texts that describe having seen the angel as having seen God. That's the basic case. We could spend a lot more time on this, but we do have to move on. What we need to bring into this discussion is the reality that there are actually more titles more names for the divine visitor, the sent one, the visible God in the Old Testament. In other words, there are places in the Old Testament where God appears, but under a different name or title than the angel of Yahweh. Or another way to say that is the angel of Yahweh appears in more places than just the text that use that phrase, the angel of Yahweh. He has other titles, so let's consider at least some of these. I put more than I'm going to talk about tonight in your uh, handout. We're going to consider just a few, these ministries, these these works of God manifest. Each of them are important, and not each of them has always clearly been recognized as a name or a title in the past. So it's worth a, a little bit of extra attention. Very briefly, the presence or the face, the face of the Lord. We've already heard text mention that. But in Isaiah, in recounting the Exodus, in summarizing the Exodus, the prophet writes, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence, or his, his face, this is the same Hebrew word, the angel of his presence saved them. Of course, that makes a specific application of the phrase we've already heard in Exodus. My presence will go with you. My face will go with you. I will give you rest. We won't look at other places now, but sometimes when you read about the face or the presence of Yahweh in the Old Testament, that's not some vague sense of nearness or this this feeling that God is here. It's it's a concrete, visible manifestation of God. The glory, the glory. When we read the phrase, the glory of Yahweh, the glory of God, we tend to think God's greatness in the abstract. It's a quality, His magnificence, His honor. And that is certainly what the phrase usually means, something like that. But it is also clearly used as a title for God's visible manifestation, for the angel of Yahweh, for Yahweh seen. So sometimes we should be thinking capital G, glory. First, you'll remember in Exodus that all three of these occur in parallel statements. Yahweh was in the cloud, the angel of Yahweh was in the cloud, and the glory of Yahweh was in the cloud. Even there, that could mean Yahweh's greatness, or it could be a title for the angel. How do we decide? Well, we look elsewhere in the text of Scripture. When describing Moses' special relationship with God, Numbers says, With him, with Moses, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of Yahweh. Moses sees something visible, he interacts with the angel of the Lord. And interestingly, both the ancient Greek and Aramaic translations sub glory for form. They read in describing Moses talking with the angel, Moses beholds the glory of Yahweh. Still, just maybe potential uses of glory as a name. We have this happen explicitly in Ezekiel. You remember uh, in the beginning of Ezekiel, he sees a grand heavenly vision of God sitting in a, a, a super throne chariot with he- creatures as his uh, horses and wheels within wheels and all sorts of stuff that we don't understand and Ezekiel describes it this way above the expanse or jumping into the description above the expanse over the heads of the cherubim there was the likeness of a throne in the in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance and upward from what the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. And then summarizing, such was the appearance of the image of the glory of Yahweh. This is the appearance of the glory of Yahweh. And you might say, well, maybe that he, meant, he meant the whole vision, right? The whole vision was the glory of Yahweh. As in the whole vision imaged God's greatness and its power. But that's not how Ezekiel continues with the glory language. He says later, in continuing the vision, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which he rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And Yahweh said to him, pass through the city. The glory got up from the cherub on which the glory rested. In other words, the glory wasn't the whole vision. It was the one in the vision sitting above the cherubim. The one resting. The glory got up and he called out and he spoke. Similarly, Isaiah had a heavenly throne vision. In that year the king Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In light of Ezekiel's language, it's understandable that the Aramaic translations of Isaiah read, I saw the glory of Yahweh sitting on the throne. God the angel, God the sent one, described as the glory of Yahweh mediator, intercessor. We'll move down there. We also see the angel doing some pretty amazing things. Consider just for a moment his intercessory work. We could look at some difficult passages in Job, but let's take a straightforward one in Zechariah. In Zechariah 3, the prophet describes a vision. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh, rebuke you, O Satan. Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And and to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And he said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of Yahweh was standing by. The angel of Yahweh is both called Yahweh and he cites Yahweh in the same line as he rebukes Satan. And then amazingly, the angel commands for the filthy garments to be removed. And he declares, I, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. It's a weird way to talk. In the very same text, he says, Yahweh rebuke you. He could have easily said, Yahweh has cleansed you. But he says, I, I have taken your iniquity away. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. So Joshua the high priest is given new pure clothes. And the text declares comfortingly at the end, and the angel of Yahweh was standing by. He was standing near. Here we have an example of a heavenly mediator providing ritual cleansing and righteousness imputed to the people. The pure garments the angel provided counted as the people having clothed their priest appropriately. No longer did the priest have to wear their sins. Now he wore pure garments. We also see the angel described as the commander of God's armies. Most famously, the title commander appears in Joshua. When Joshua, in Joshua chapter 5, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The commander says the same thing that the angel in the fire of the bush said to Moses Take off your sandals, this is holy ground. He's the commander, the commander of the heavenly armies. We also have other places and related titles that probably refer to a divine commander. I mean, Moses, in his song in Exodus, he sings, Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. And then he says, your right hand, Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, Yahweh, shatters the enemy. Now, right hand here could be an anthropomorphism. It could be just a way of describing God's strength. But consider the fact that in the Bible and in the wider ancient Near East, right hand, or even just hand, is actually a title of military commanders. Such a commander is often described both as being at the king's right hand or just metonymically as the right hand or the hand. Commanders of armies, usually it was the highest general, were called the right hand of the king. It's a military title, as in the king sent his right hand to deal with the rebellion in Caesarea. The king sent his top general. In Isaiah, the prophet addresses God in a war context like this. He says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. Awake as in days of old. Isaiah also describes the Exodus, which we have seen was filled with references to the angel going with the people, going with Moses. And Isaiah says, God caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. Notice, again, even just the grammar there. God caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses. Arm's the subject. The arm is going. God caused, and then the arm in this clause is going at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them. Who's the one doing the dividing? The right arm that God caused to go with Moses. Lastly, consider the famous Psalm 110 where our English translation sometimes causes us confusion. We read, the Lord says to my Lord. But if you're, you're staring at the text, you'll note that one of these lords is Yahweh. It's in all caps in our English Bible and then one of them is literally just the word Lord, owner, master. And the text clearly distinguishes, Psalm 110 clearly distinguishes between the two throughout. So in the Psalm, David speaks of someone who could be called... His Lord, David's Lord, who is distinct from Yahweh. I mean, who's above David already? That's an interesting thing to be talking about. But David recognizes someone, and this Lord of David, Yahweh appoints as his own right hand. And David writes, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And then later in the text, David, speaking to Yahweh, says, the Lord is at your right hand. That's the small caps Lord, the Lord of David, who's distinct from Yahweh. Listen to how David describes this Lord who is at Yahweh's right hand. He says, The Lord is at your right hand, yours, God, and this Lord, He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. David describes a Lord above Himself who is appointed by Yahweh as the right hand, a Lord who is described as shattering kings on the day of His wrath and executing judgment among the nations. That's quite lofty language, but perfectly suited for the commander of the armies of heaven, whom Joshua fell before in reverence. Then bundle that together with how often Yahweh is himself identified, as Moses put it, a man of war. I mean, one of God's favorite titles for himself is Lord of Hosts, Yahweh of Hosts. Over 250 times in the Old Testament, Yahweh of Hosts which means Yahweh, the leader of the heavenly armies, the leader of the angelic armies. don't have time to explain that, but there's actually a chapter in R.C. Sproul's book on the unseen. There's a chapter all about the heavenly host. So if you're interested more, you can grab that fast. And lastly, as far as titles go, here's the most important title for bringing us back to John 1.1. The Word of Yahweh. The Word of Yahweh. We pretty much always read statements like the word of Yahweh came, the word of the Lord came, as meaning something like the message of Yahweh came. Like this person received a message, he became aware of words that God wanted him to know. We take the word of Yahweh to refer to the content of what was communicated. But sometimes, and it often does, but sometimes it actually refers to the messenger, not the message. Sometimes it is a name or a title for the one speaking. In Genesis, it says, After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abraham in a vision. If you're not Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Note that the word comes in a vision. This is something seen. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he brought Abram outside. He said to him, Who's the he? The only subject for the verb in context is the word. And what does bring mean? This isn't a voice in Abram's head. This is a visible manifestation. Note how the passage continues. He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. What does bring me mean if we are dealing with a disembodied voice? Abram brought him all these things. There is clearly something physical and visible about this word of Yahweh in Genesis 15. But this is still even clearer in other passages. For instance, in Samuel, we read, The word of Yahweh was rare in those days. This is Samuel's calling story. The word of Yahweh was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. The word of Yahweh is once again connected to appearances. No frequent vision. So then in the night, Samuel has his his famous encounter with Yahweh, which is described thusly. Yahweh called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And Yahweh called again. Samuel. Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know Yahweh. The word of Yahweh had not yet been revealed to him or not yet appeared to him. What does that mean? Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, and the word had not yet been revealed to him and not yet appeared to him. Remember, Samuel was working in the temple. He's described just a chapter earlier as ministering before Yahweh. He obviously knew about Yahweh. He obviously had read Leviticus and all the rest of the Pentateuch. But the word of Yahweh had not yet been revealed to him. In other words, Yahweh had not yet appeared to him. The story continues. Yahweh called Samuel again, the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that Yahweh was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And Yahweh came and stood, calling in the same way, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. And the passage continues. Samuel lay until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of Yahweh, and Yahweh and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. And look how specific the text is. Yahweh came and stood. This is not a voice in the head. He came and stood. Not a disembodied voice. This is the sent God, the angelic messenger. And notice how the whole event is summarized in the very last verse of 1 Samuel 3. So Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh. For Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. He appeared by the word. Yahweh appeared again. He revealed himself. He appeared by the word of Yahweh. Consider Jeremiah's calling. Right in the beginning of the prophet's book, he says, Now the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. It goes on, Then Yahweh put out his hand and touched my mouth. And he said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Yahweh reached out his hand and he touched his mouth. Clearly when Jeremiah said the word of Yahweh came to me, he means something other than I heard a disembodied voice. And also maybe most verbally interesting is the case of Elijah. In the Elijah narrative, we read things like the word of Yahweh came to Elijah. At least four times it says that. The word of Yahweh came to Elijah. We also read of an angel coming to him. The angel touches him and says to him, arise and eat. You remember that? But then curiously, in First 1 Kings 19.9, so we've got that alternation. We've got an angel going on in the text. We've got the word of Yahweh going on in the text. And then in First 1 Kings 19.9, we read this. Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. And he said to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? Did you catch that? What an interesting way to put that. The word of Yahweh came and he said. Some translations, like the NIV, actually leave out the and he said because it, it just kind of sounds weird if you don't understand it. So they just go straight into quoting the message. But no, it clearly says in Hebrew, and so is rightfully represented in most of your translations the word of Yahweh came and he said. The word of Yahweh is the messenger, not just the message. So in the Old Testament, in summary, there was Yahweh. And with Yahweh there was the angel of Yahweh, the sent God, who is also called the word of Yahweh as a title. He is distinct from Yahweh, yet perfectly identified with him, such that God can say, My name is in him, and he can be called the face of Yahweh, the presence of Yahweh, and the glory of Yahweh. And who has the heavenly prerogatives of judgment, forgiveness, leading the heavenly armies, providing cleansing and righteousness for his people as a mediator. To see him is to see Yahweh. That's all in the Old Testament. So it's not weird when John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God John's not talking about some abstract Greek philosophy. He's talking about the Word, capital W, the sent one, the glory, the commander, the presence, in whom is the name. John closes his prologue with these interesting words. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. It's not weird. That's Old Testament. John said all these things because he recognized Christ for who he was. Isn't it amazing that all of the titles and actions of the sent one in the Old Testament are ascribed to Jesus in the New? Jesus is the sent one who perfectly speaks the word. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. Jesus is the one in whom is the name of God. He said in prayer, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I have manifested your name. Jesus also prayed in John, Father, glorify your name. That was his prayer. He asked God, Father, glorify your name. And then shortly after that it says, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. For God to glorify Jesus is for God to glorify his own name. Jesus is the presence. He's the, he's the very face of God. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Paul said of Christ, for God who said, light, light, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews puts it this way, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is our heavenly mediator. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. You remember, to the total amazement of the crowds and the leaders, Jesus could with full confidence say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. He could pardon iniquities. And Jesus commands the heavenly armies in fact, given how often God is called the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, the leader of the heavenly armies in the Old Testament, I'm surprised that these aren't more, more common proof texts for Jesus' deity. Because in Matthew, Jesus says, The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into a fiery furnace. Or, the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. His angels. He has angels. Jesus owns angels. He has a heavenly army. And here's the point of all this. Christ. Jesus Christ was always there. He was the right hand of the Lord, the angel, the commander, the presence, leading the people out of Egypt. Is it any wonder that Jude says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt and afterward destroyed those who did not believe. John 1.1 isn't weird, but it is profound. Jesus was active in the Old Testament because Jesus was always there. And that also means that the very titles and activities of Jesus in the Old Testament tell us something about the very nature and character of God. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. Christ reveals God. That means God has always been an angelic God, meaning He has always been a sending and a sent God into eternity before there was any creation. That's the the language of eternally begotten in the old confessions. The Son was eternally, as in always, as in never having not been begotten. God has always been relational. He has always been relating. God has always been a glorious God. Glory is kind of a meaningless idea apart from an audience. God has always been glorious means God's glory has always been displayed and God's glory has always been appreciated. In God himself, there has always been an eternal display of and audience for divine glory. God has always been a presence-sharing God. He has always been a God who draws near. He has always had a presence to enjoy and someone to enjoy it. God has always been a speaking and revealing God. Do you understand what Christ means? Jesus Christ means that God has never been silent. God is, in His very nature, angel, glorious, present, and speaking. And the Old Testament was just a taste of that. The Old Testament revelation was just a shadow of the revelation that happened when the Word became flesh. When the presence was born, when the glory became a man, when the commander took the form of a servant, everything that Jesus reveals to us in his humanity, in his flesh, we can trust as perfect revelation of the very nature of God himself. And so for us, for us who believe in Christ, for us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that means God sends to us. He doesn't just send to a prophet anymore. Right? He sends to us. Christ is sent to us. That means we can hear God. Jesus is the Word. You can hear God in Christ. You can hear from your creator. That means you you get to know God's name. He has revealed His name to you. You get to relate to Him. That means our transgressions can be forgiven. In Christ, He will forgive our iniquities. It also means he will deliver us. I I don't know most of you that well, some of you at all, and I can't possibly imagine all the difficult things that go on in your life and all your trials and travails. And I don't have much often good comfort to to speak into any of that, but we do have this comfort in Scripture, that God will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Christ incarnate is a witness to us of Christ eternal. Christ eternal is truly eternal. He was there in the beginning. He was there throughout the entire Old Testament. And so Christ eternal is a witness to us of God. Jesus is God with us. The sent one, the presence, the glory, the commander, the word is with us. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your mercy to us, your, your condescension. We thank you for being all that you are. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and we thank you that he has always been all that he is. And We praise you for that. And so we just ask that we would see you more clearly, that we would recognize you, that we would recognize your son, Jesus, and that we would give you all the glory you deserve. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.